Luke chapter 15, read verses 11 through 32. And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pod that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he had come to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you, and I've never neglected the command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might just celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, and was lost, and has been found. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are always in awe of the teaching that You provide us in Your Word. We're always in awe of the teaching which Jesus gave during His earthly ministry. Lord, this morning is no exception. This parable has made huge impacts the world over. I pray that this morning you give us fresh eyes to look at it, to consider it. 
You help us all to see the marvelous grace and mercy that You have for lost and wayward sons. And thank You for the provision that You have made in Jesus. We pray this in His name. Amen. Last week we considered the first ten verses of Luke chapter 15. As is the case with all of Jesus' discourse, we could spend hours upon hours on even small phrases throughout the Scriptures. Whole books have been written on these three parables, especially the one that we're looking at today. So we could break this parable into many subsections and study each one in turn. Yet in so doing, we might run the risk of kind of missing the forest for the trees. This is not to say that a very slow walking through any portion of Scripture is misdirected but that we need to be diligent to consider the context in which every verse fits. As we're scrutinizing all these details and considering unique facets on any portion of Scripture, we need to make sure that we keep track of the main thought. It's possible to say true things from the Scriptures while all the while missing the main point. That's what we don't want to do this morning. The parable of the prodigal son, I think, is one such occasion. Even that title... I think can be misleading. Luke 15, verse 11 says, And he said, A man had two sons. This verse is more important than many people think it to be at first glance. Jesus addressed his audience here with yet another parable. Remember, this is in the context of Jesus being surrounded by tax collectors and sinners who had come near to Jesus to listen to him speak. Also present is a group of Pharisees and scribes who have come at least near enough to grumble from the outskirts at the fact that all these sinners and tax collectors are drawing so near to Jesus. The lips on these Pharisees and scribes betrays what's resting in their hearts. They go, this, they don't even dignify Jesus with a name here, this receives sinners and eats with them. See that in chapter 15, verse 2. We have to keep that immediate audience in mind as we consider this third of these three parables. And note that Jesus here is speaking parable upon parable. There are some thematic parallels between all three of these parables. We see lostness. We see joy in finding that which is lost. But there are some distinct elements that we find in this third and final parable that we'll need to spend some time with considering this morning. Certainly, it was blessed news indeed to hear that the common joy that anyone experiences if they're a shepherd and finds a sheep or a woman who finds a coin, that that joy is found in heaven when a lost soul is found. The tax collectors and sinners who are hearing these parables would be inwardly rejoicing. What a sweet security to hear that heaven's attitude towards them was one of joy. Whenever a sinner is exposed and his depravity and wickedness and rebellion comes to light, he might be in a place of vulnerability. And in that humbled, broken place, he might wonder, how will God respond? What a wonderful, joyful thing it is to know that there is joy in heaven over one soul, one sinner who repents. Should you really come to grips with your sinfulness, you know how deeply you deserve judgment. You're a sinner in front of a holy God. You deserve eternal judgment in hell. Yet Jesus, by means of the first two parables, indicates that there's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents rather than 99 who think themselves to need no repentance. 
And what we learn from Jesus' parables here is not only does God receive sinners who repent, not only does He wish that sinners repent, but God is actively seeking sinners and bringing them to Himself. He's the one who sought out the lost sheep and after having found it, put it on His shoulders and carried it home. He's the one who demonstrated His commitment to finding even the lost coin by sweeping the entire house and lighting a lamp and searching until He found it. Notice in both of those two parables, there's no question about if he or she will find it. It's just a matter of when. There are no ifs about this, only when. And when the lost are found, rejoicing ensues. This is incredible news. And that theme is certainly carried over into this third parable as well. There's a crescendo of sorts in these three parables of lostness. Because we move from sheep to coins to sons. We move from one in a hundred to one in ten to one in two. The stakes rise as we proceed. And they become more and more personal as well. This parable reiterates the truth that we've already considered. God rejoices in finding the lost. God rejoices in finding rebellious souls and bringing them to repentance and to Himself. Many have alluded to this parable to point out the grandeur of God's love for the prodigal. Rightly so. Jesus' words were sweet music to those tax collectors and sinners. And those words continue to be sweet music to us, don't they? For who among us cannot identify with the prodigal? Who here says, I've never been the prodigal? If you think that to be the case, you are deceived, my friend. But return with me to Luke 15, verse 11. I told you this verse has passed by too quickly. Jesus began this parable by saying, A certain man had two sons. Now, it's not uncommon for titles to be derived from the first line of a story or from the main subject matter of the story. The parable of the lost sheep makes sense. The parable of the lost coin makes sense. They're quickly identified by the verses that introduce those parables. They're the main subject of those parables. A man loses a sheep. A woman loses a coin. But how does Luke 15.11 begin? A certain man had two sons. Notice, plural, two sons. Has this story suffered from a tragic mistitling? Have we lost sight of the second brother? Remember the crowd hearing Jesus is neatly divided into two groups, sinners and tax collectors and scribes and Pharisees. Jesus actually has a lesson for both of these groups. He's telling both groups that God the Father delights in finding the lost, granting them repentance, bringing them home, bringing them into His family. This is both encouraging to the sinners in attendance and it's corrective to the grumbling Pharisees and scribes. In fact, anyone who thinks that they have no need of repentance and grumble that others are being saved, those ones are being rebuked here. But in quite a tender way as well. Jesus is answering their implied question, why is this one welcoming and eating with sinners? Jesus is telling him through these parables, I not only received them, I'm seeking them out. I came to seek and to save that which is lost. But Jesus isn't going to leave the lesson for those Pharisees and tax collectors to be just one through implication. So he turns his gaze in the course of this third parable to that other group, to those Pharisees and scribes. And he does this by means of the older brother. It's in considering his distinctive actions 
that we see an important truth that Jesus was driving at. Perhaps a new title for this parable is in order. John MacArthur, back in 2008, wrote a book entitled The Tale of Two Sons. Others have done similarly. The structure of this magnificent story, which Jesus tells, demonstrates that the older brother is just as important to Jesus' point as the younger one. A certain man had two sons. Ultimately, both were in need of saving. Both were in need of their father's love. Both were in need of an even older brother who would respond in a vastly different fashion than the older brother found in this parable. One who would seek both types of brothers out and save them. One who would bring them home to his father and into a joyous feast. So perhaps the focus should ultimately shift away from even the two brothers towards one another and instead shift towards another brother. One who came to seek and save the lost. I want to consider that in the sermon entitled, The Elder Brother We All Need. The elder brother we all need. First, let's note two brothers in rebellion. Two brothers in rebellion. Two brothers in rebellion. Let me consider these in turn. First of all, let's consider the younger brother. We're first introduced to this younger brother of the two. We're scarcely introduced to him before we find him acting in an unheard of manner. He asks his father to give him his inheritance now. Many have explained that this request was akin to wishing your father dead. It was only after a father's death that the father's property was divided then among his children. But this younger son wants what's coming to him now. It's a huge insult. And we can get a little taste of that, can't we? If one of our children came up to him and said, yeah, I want that and I want it now. But in that culture... Such a huge level of disrespect is being spoken of here. Many would expect that the father to such a request would turn around and slap the son. His honor had been infringed upon. Maybe even banish the son from the family. After all, in that honor-shame culture, his honor was at stake. But instead, we hear that the father divides his life. The word there, bios in Greek, get the word biology from the study of life. Bios, it's translated by many here, wealth or property or living. I like the word livelihood. Good translation. He, he, he divides his livelihood among his sons. Father places his livelihood into his son's hands. Just think about that for a moment. What tremendous affection is present in this father towards this rebellious, dishonoring son. What tremendous affection is here. I mean, typically, when our love is rejected, how do we respond? We get angry. We retaliate. We withdraw. But this father does quite the opposite. He patiently endures a tremendous loss of honor and property, bearing the agony out of love for his sons. The action of the younger son demonstrates this, that he wants his father's things, not his father. He wants his father's stuff. He doesn't want his father. The relationship with his father was only a means to get to his father's wealth. And now he's grown impatient. The old man won't kick off. So he approaches his father and he demands his inheritance now. It doesn't take long for us to discover what the younger son's plan is. He wishes to escape as far away as possible from his father's house. 
He wants nothing to do with his father. He doesn't want to live in the presence of his father. He doesn't care about his brother. He wants out of there. He wishes to strike out on his own. He wants to live for himself. He wants to indulge himself in a distant country. And his foolishness is quickly seen in the squandering of his wealth and prodigal living, reckless spending. But I told you there are two brothers in rebellion. The younger brother's rebellion is quite obvious and plain. Meanwhile, the older brother is silent through all of this. We don't see any action coming from him. We don't have any words coming from him. But we find in this parable a reiteration of the dreadful effects of sin in relationships. It's not until the younger brother returns home that we get a glimpse now into the older brother's rebellion. You understand that both sons are in rebellion? Up to now, he's been silent. But now his heart is exposed. The older brother was out in the field. And he's walking back towards the house. And he hears music. And he sees dancing in the distance. His curiosity is piqued. And he wonders what's going on. So he summons a servant to inquire of him what's going on. What's happened? The servant explains, Your brother has returned and your father has killed the fattened calf. Because he's received him back safe and sound. But upon hearing this news, the older brother is angry. And he sulks outside the festivities. We find out what the older brother is thinking. In great rash boldness, he tells his father a thing or two here. Even interesting, he doesn't even address his father as father, but just says to him in verse 29, look! As if the older brother here has taken charge. He's lost sight of where he sits within the family. He goes on to explain to his father at least two things. Number one, I, in contrast to this, your other son, have served you without neglecting even a command for these many years. And I've never even received so much as a young goat to celebrate with my friends. He feels he's been done an injustice here. You haven't compensated me fairly, Father. And then secondly, he complains by horizontal comparison, this son of yours, after devouring your, by us, your livelihood, with prostitutes, has returned, and you've given him not only just some goat, but the fattened calf. You've given him the best. Because there's this whole situation to be completely unfair. He has not been appropriately compensated for all of his hard work, and the younger brother has been received that which he did not deserve at all. It seems from this older brother's comments that he would much rather his younger brother just go back to being dead. Now, it may be worth reminding you that at the start of this, what did the father do? He divided up the inheritance between his sons, right? What has the younger son done with his inheritance? He squandered it. So understand that when the younger son comes back and the father welcomes him into the family, guess what's happened? Whose fattened calf was that? Who's being given a position back in the family again? And who doesn't like it one bit? Yes, the older brother. You see, the younger brother's reception would cost the older brother something. Something he was not willing to part with. 
Even the father tells his son, right? He says, all that's mine is yours. Because truly, everything that was left would now be the older brother's. Yet it's in these moments, in these statements from the older brother, that we see there is actually a tremendous commonality between both the older and younger brothers. They both cared more about their father's stuff than their father. Do you note that? They both cared more about their father's stuff than their father. Neither brother cared for the other brother either. The younger brother left his brother for a far country. The older brother is mad that he's returned. Note that the older brother doesn't even go and greet his younger brother. He doesn't give him a hug. He doesn't inquire what's happened. How are you doing? He goes so far as to tell the father, he's wasted your livelihood on prostitutes. Did he know that? Was he sure of that? How does he know that? Is he jumping to conclusions? Whether or not that was the case, he cares little about the actual state of his brother. And as a matter of fact, won't even refer to him as his brother, does he? This son of yours. Interestingly, when he asks the servant, the servant says, your brother's returned. When his father talks about him, he says, your brother, this brother of yours. But when he refers to him, he says, this son of yours. He doesn't want to own him as his brother. Again, he'd rather him still be dead. Remember, the father says he was dead, and now he's back alive again. The older brother's still like, I'd rather him still be dead. At least dead to our family. He was more concerned about the wasting of his inheritance than the safe return of his brother. You see, sin has a horrible effect on brotherly kindness. It can be traced all the way back to the very beginning parts of Scripture, can't it? I mean, Adam and Eve's first children. What do we see right away? Fratricide. A brother killing a brother. Cain and Abel. Cain killed his brother Abel because God received Abel's offering and not Cain's. And when asked about his brother's whereabouts, Cain is quick to ask, Am I my brother's keeper? Which is such a ridiculous question. And not only, yes, you should be looking out for your brother, but he's not just merely neglected to do that. He's killed him. The first recorded murder is a fratricide. doesn't take long for sin to have its devastating effects, does it? It doesn't affect us just horizontally with, with, or vertically with God, but also horizontally with one another. And the older brother in Jesus' parable is in a similar spiritual position. He may not kill his younger brother, but he definitely wishes him to be still dead to the family. The same hatred resides in his heart. But don't miss this also. This older brother's actions aren't only against his younger brother, but also against his father. By not going into the celebration, he's publicly casting a vote of disapproval. I disapprove of what my father is doing here. And when his father comes out to him, he starts berating his father. He's caused a scene in front of everyone. Again, he was more concerned about his father's stuff than his father. In the end, both sons are using their father to their own self-centered ends rather than serving their father for his own sake. What Jesus is demonstrating through this parable is that the Gospel calls us away from not only the overt rebellion of the younger brother, but also the self-righteous egotism of the older brother. The Gospel speaks against both and calls us and invites us 
to another way. Invites us to the wondrous grace of God by which a man might be saved. Both, both brothers are in rebellion. Both brothers are in need of salvation. Secondly, though, I want you to notice a magnanimous father's love. A magnanimous father's love. And again, I want to take these in turn. Let's consider his love towards the younger brother and then his love towards the older brother. The younger son has squandered his inheritance. And then he's met with external conditions over which he had no control. Told that famine struck the land. And for the first time in his life, consider this, friends, for the first time in his life, he's now wondering, what am I going to eat today? How am I going to continue to live? I wonder how many of us have even encountered one day like that. Maybe some of you have. So many things that we call needs are not that at all. This son is now faced with genuine, absolute physical need. He has nothing. And we're told that no one was giving him any help. He attaches himself to a citizen of that country, a foreigner, who then sends him out into the fields to feed pigs. Many have made a big point about this. Here we have a Jewish boy feeding an unclean animal, feeding the pigs. And he's in such a desperate state that his hunger is so extreme that he wishes even to eat the pods that the pigs were eating. The point is that this younger son has come to an absolute low point. And it's at this point that we're told he comes to himself. And what does he remember? He remembers his father's generosity. He remembers his father's graciousness. Even his father's hired hands had more than enough bread. His father was no miserly boss. Note that. It's his knowledge of his father's kindness that leads him to repentance. It's when he remembers his father's generosity and kindness that his heart is changed. And so he decides, I'm going to return. I'm going to get up. I'm going to go back home. I'm going to acknowledge my unworthiness to any longer be my father's son. I'm going to admit that I've sinned against heaven and against my father. And I'm going to ask that he be so gracious, I don't deserve it, but be so gracious to allow me to become one of his hired hands. Perhaps I might be able to preserve my life for a little bit longer by taking up the role of menial hired hand. So he rises and commences with his plan. But the father will have none of it. The father graciously interrupts this son's plan. We're told while the son was still far away, the father sees him and has compassion on him. He runs. Many have noted fathers in that culture did not run. They didn't bare their legs. It's a shameful display. Little boys run. Fathers don't run. And they certainly don't run to rebellious, dishonoring sons. But this father does. He girds his loins and runs out to the boy. Once again, we see the father bearing shame for his son out of his great love for him. He falls on his son's neck. He embraces him. And he kisses him. The son begins his rehearsed plea. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. No longer am I worthy to be called your son. But he isn't even able to get to the plan part where can I be 
a hireling for you? Because the father is already turned and commanding his servants, quickly, bring out the best robe, clothe him, put a ring on his hand, put sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf, kill it, let's throw a feast, let's rejoice. Why? For this my son, who was dead, now lives, and who was lost, is now found. Note the contrast. Does the father have any difficulty owning this boy? Not at all. My son, he is home. He was dead. Now he's alive. He was lost. Now he's found. Kill the fattened calf. Throw a big celebration. Put sandals on his feet. A ring on his finger. Put the best robe on his back. My son is back from the dead. We're told that not only did this father rejoice, but they began to rejoice. Verse 24. Again, the parallel with the other parables is very plain, is it not? When the shepherd comes home with the sheep, what happens? He's not only inwardly rejoicing as he carried that sheep home, but when he gets home, he throws a party. And what does that woman do after she's found that lost coin? She calls her friends over and they have a party. Similarly here, his father, when he receives his, his son back home, he throws a party. And it was not just some simple affair, it was extravagant. Everyone rejoices. Well, almost everyone. Yeah, that older brother isn't. But don't miss this either. This father's love is extended towards this older son as well. Don't miss it. As soon as this father discovers that his older son has not entered into the festival celebrating the return of his brother, the father goes out to him and starts exhorting him. He warmly welcomes him. He prods him to come into the feast, to enter into the celebration. After claiming that his father was unfair for having withheld festive celebrations from him and his friends and lavishing such a celebration on his prodigal brother, the father replies, to the son with such patience and graciousness. Again, what seems to be in order is a slap across the face. How dare you question what I do? How dare you be out here in a huff? How dare you correct me? How dare you make a scene of this? But instead, the father gently attempts to persuade his older son that his actions were absolutely necessary. It was the only fitting thing to do. It was necessary that they celebrate the return of the wayward brother. Get this too. The brother, he's mad. He never even killed a goat for me and my friends. Well, guess what, buddy? There's veal down there right now. Call your friends. Join the celebration. Nothing's stopping you from enjoying it. It's his own self-righteousness and pride that prevents him from going down to that feast. His own hardness of heart. So interesting here is this. We come to realize that to enter into the joy of salvation, one must not only repent of the things that they've done wrong, but they must also repent of the reasons that they ever did anything right. You have to repent of any and all of your own attempts to make yourself right in God's sight, by your own doing. It is this sort of religiosity that separates many people from salvation. They think, I've done a lot of good things. God owes me something. Why is that happening to them? I'm owed better than what they're getting. In that moment, you recognize that they don't understand grace. Truly, God owes us nothing 
But meanwhile here, he's pictured as gracious and gentle and caring. Third, I want to consider how this parable is actually a story awaiting a conclusion. Third, this is a story awaiting a conclusion. Quickly, this parable is open-ended. I mean, in every story, you await the conclusion, right? There's some sort of conflict that develops, and then you're looking for that to be resolved. How many of us like a story that doesn't end well? Anybody seen any TV shows lately that didn't end very well after maybe many years of uh, sacrifice and then it didn't end well? I'm not going to say, maybe some of you were there. Anybody read a book that doesn't end well or read a series of books and didn't end well and felt very disenfranchised by the whole experience? We look to see how the plot is wrapped up in the end. And if it's not wrapped up, we're dissatisfied. Jesus' parable here leaves us hanging. You see, with the the younger son, there's resolution. A party ensues. Rejoicing erupts. But with the older son, the tension between him and his father is not finally resolved. Jesus leaves us wondering what will happen with the older brother. How did he respond? What did he do? Extensive studies have been done on the literary structure of this story. As always, some critics out there go, well, this is a fragment story and it's the lost part of it through the transmission process. But there are other scholars... Men like Kenneth Bailey, who's a Presbyterian commentator who is fluent in Arabic and in a specialist in Middle Eastern literature. Just about every commentary mentions Kenneth Bailey because of the work that he has done on this. He spent 40 years teaching New Testament in the Middle East. This guy knows Middle Eastern culture. And in particular, what he discovered in this parable is a figurative device, a literary device called a chiasm. You've heard that phrase, I'm sure, before from us or from a study note or something of that nature. But you really have two sets of, and I don't have the time or the space to really explain each of these part, points in detail. If you are interested, I'd love to talk with you further about it and catch me after the service and I'll walk you through it. But what he ends up demonstrating through this literary structure is that the first part of this, the first half of this, the discussion with the younger son, Makes a perfect chiasm. The second one with the older leaves us one stanza short of completing it. In other words, demonstrating is that Jesus purposefully left that off. There's a purposeful reason why this this parable does not come to a conclusion. The story begs us to consider how the story might end. What kind of conclusion would the father hope for here? What did the father long might happen? I like the way that John MacArthur proposes a happy ending. Listen to this happy ending. This is great. Any of you like happy endings? I like this happy ending. Then the elder son fell on his knees before his father saying, I repent for my bitter, loveless heart, for my hypocritical service, and for my pride and self-righteousness. Forgive me, father. Make me a true son. Take me inside to the feast. Then the father embraced the firstborn son, smothered him with tearful, grateful kisses, took him inside, seated him alongside of his brother in dual seats of honor. They all rejoiced together because the level of joy that was already in this amazing celebration suddenly doubled. No one would ever forget that night. Wow, that's quite an ending. But it wouldn't be how the Pharisees would write it. How did the Pharisees respond to this? Certainly they connected that they are the older brother. How would they write the ending of this parable? 
Well, we don't have to guess. It's written in history. It's written in history. This is how they responded. Spurning the gentle, inviting words of the Father, they continued on the outside of the celebration. They grumbled and they complained, hoping that their father might come to his senses and repent and kick that younger brother out of the house. Banish him forever. You see, they believed that Jesus' kindness towards these sinners was unfair. They believed these prodigals deserved nothing but punishment, while they, the religious elite, deserved all the attention and all the blessings. In fact, the religious leaders' animosity towards the situation would grow to such an extent that they would, bring, they would plan and then bring to fruition a conspiracy to murder Jesus. But even that wouldn't be the true ending to the story. For death couldn't hold Jesus. You see, the ending to this parable is one that only God could orchestrate. An ending that only God could orchestrate. Let me ask you this question. Well, you found many similarities between the three parables. What's different? In particular, what's missing in this third parable that's present in the other two? And I would submit someone seeking the lost son. What's present in this last parable that's absent from the others? Someone not entering into joy. Someone angry and grumbling. Could it be that Jesus' words end up pointing to who should have been searching for the younger brother? Could it be the very one who fails to rejoice upon the younger brother's return? The older brother had failed to seek his younger sibling, and he grumbled when he heard of his return. He doesn't seek him, and he doesn't rejoice when he returns. But in every other of those other two parables, the one seeks and rejoices and joins the celebration. It turns out that both of these brothers needed someone to seek them out. And this, God the Father marvelously has provided. He sent a true elder brother for us in His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ who acted in a truly prodigal fashion. Not prodigal in the sense of sinful, prodigal in the sense of reckless in his expenses. That he was sparing no expense to, 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 uh, to bring to accomplish what he had been called to do. To bring both types of brothers back into the joy of God's family. You see, the welcome which the father of the household demonstrated towards the prodigal son was free to the son, but it cost the older brother something. The elder brother of this story resisted giving to his brother, even to the end of the parable. But the true elder brother, whom God has provided, was willing to be completely spent and poured out to bring his rebellious brothers home. The younger brother in the parable got a Pharisee. But we get Jesus. We need a brother who will stop at nothing to bring us home. This Jesus has done. He paid the debt of all of those who trust in Him on the cross. Tim Keller puts it so well. Jesus was stripped naked of His robe and dignity so that we could be clothed with the dignity and standing that we don't deserve. On the cross, Jesus was treated as an outcast so that we could be brought into God's family freely by grace. There, Jesus drank the cup of eternal justice so that we might have the cup of the Father's joy. There was no other way for the Heavenly Father to bring us in except at the expense of our true Elder brother. The father gladly welcomes home his wayward children, 
because His only begotten Son laid down His life for their forgiveness. Jesus provided the robe of His righteousness to cover our nakedness. We can be welcomed into the feast and eat the fattened calf because Jesus, the Lamb of God, was slaughtered in our place and rose again triumphant over sin and death. It's because of Jesus that we can be granted a place at the Father's table. It's by the Holy Spirit's invitation and wooing that we come to our senses and return home. It's the knowledge of the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's nothing but the gracious patience, grace and patience and love and mercy of our Heavenly Father that we can be restored to His family. Is there a reason to rejoice? You better believe it. As the refrain from the hymn written in 1898 by Eliza Hewitt goes, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. There's just something special about brotherhood. I'm so thankful for the brother that the Lord provided me, my brother Adam. Adam and I are separated only by a little bit over a year and a few months, and we've been the best friends our whole lives. I've experienced the truth of Proverbs 17:17, which says, "A friend loves at old times, a brother is born for adversity. When you're going through the toughest moments of life, who do you want to be with you? If you're stuck in the proverbial foxhole, who do you want having your back? Adam has always been there for me. Adam was the only sibling I had growing up. Now by marriage, I very grateful for the expanded family that I've been granted many more brothers and sisters. But being my younger yet bigger brother, Adam had always kind of taken the role of my protector. People didn't mess with me because they had to mess with him. And he was much larger than me. They were concerned about disastrous consequences that might fall upon them should they do something to me. But as much as my brother and I care and love one another, as much as he wants to protect me and he is a sort of brother's keeper, he could not ultimately give me what I need, nor I him. No matter how much we might stick together, no matter how many adversities we might go through, we cannot ultimately save one another. Because the problem that we both have, we can't save each other from. The truth is both he and I have demonstrated qualities of both the prodigal son and the self-righteous son. We've both been at times the older and younger brother. Ask my parents, they'll be able to tell you. In fact, we might lean in one direction or the other, but we all share qualities in common with the sons in Jesus' parable. All of us do. All of us have moments where we try to put our own self-righteousness forward for right standing with God. All of us have gone our own way and wandered off. Which of us has not spurned the authority of God our Father? Should God number our sins, who could stand? If we not all demanded our own way, not all transgress God's commandments? Have we not all rebelled against the loving rule of God the Father, wandering away to a far country, wasting our lives in worldliness and fleeting vanities? We've all gathered up the good blessings of God and spent them on our own pleasures. We've attempted to store up treasures for ourselves here on earth, to make a name for ourselves, to explore every sort of pleasure under the sun. That is us. On the other hand, Oddly enough, we've also simultaneously attempted to establish our own righteousness before God. Which of us has not made horizontal comparisons to someone else saying, I'm better than so-and-so, I'm better than so-and-so, I'm doing better than him. We, like the older brother, oftentimes engage in religious activity in an effort to secure a place of right standing before God. 
thinking that the cosmic scales will come out and I've done enough good, it's going to outweigh the bad, so I'm going to be fine with God. And then we use that same scale to judge everyone else. And somehow we're always better than everyone else. Isn't that interesting? I wonder how that happens. We think through all of that that we can make God indebted to us. That He then owes us good things as a result of our good behavior. We lift up our noses at those who we deem are unworthy of God's grace and mercy. How many today live under the false premise that they are deserving of honor and glory for their own good conduct? That a place will be prepared for them on the basis of their self-righteousness? You see, what this all exposes is this. No matter how close you are with friends and brothers, we all need the true elder brother Jesus. Through Him and Him alone, both prodigals and self-righteous people are granted access into God's family. And our entrance is only possible because of His finished work in our stead. He's the true brother's keeper. God the Father's loving plan of redemption was accomplished through the prodigal love of Jesus Christ. He would spare no expense to save us. His blood furnished a way where there was otherwise no way. He gladly makes us co-heirs with Himself. He ushers us into His inheritance. He joins, He welcomes us, He calls us, He drags us into His kingdom, granting us all the rights and privileges appertaining thereunto. I've been to a graduation ceremony just the other day. What a joy there is in this family. This has all been done by God's grace and mercy and love. To know that the eternal Son of God took on flesh, dwelt among us, laid down His life, fulfilled all righteousness, was buried, and on the third day rose again, gives us hope. We hope in Him who was dead and now has risen through His death and resurrection. Jesus has secured for God, redeemed sons and daughters for all eternity. He's the one out searching for all the wayward sons. Luke 15 offers encouragement to all prodigal, rebellious souls that God is saving the lost, wherever they may be. And He rejoices in that activity. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, if you repent and believe in Jesus Christ, you'll be granted a place at God's banquet table. God's grace is able to forgive every sin to remove every blemish and grant the righteousness that's required to stand before God, holy and blameless. You can enjoy the fattened gaff because of the crucified and risen Lamb, the Lion that is of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, Jesus Christ, Son of God and Son of Man. Luke 15 offers loving rebuke as well to any who scoff at God's offer of forgiveness and God's desire to make provision for the chief of sinners. Any who attempt to establish their own righteousness before God are running a fool's errand. You cannot do it. It's an effort in futility. Even if you rightly posit the Scriptures as God's standard, which they are, even the older brother fails to enter into the joy of his father's feast, not because of his wrongdoing, but because of his self-righteousness. Isaiah 64, 6 declares, all righteous deeds are like a filthy garment in God's eyes. Romans 3.10-12 says, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. You see, when the law is used correctly, what it does is it exposes our sin and it leads us as a tutor to Christ. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. 
This is a loving rebuke from God. For you must come to the same place that the former Pharisee Paul did when he explained in Philippians 3 that he counts all things as loss. All things as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And this is truly blessed news. Both the prodigal and the self-righteous brothers, there's hope for them. There's hope for the prodigal and there's hope for the self-righteous. There's hope for the tax collectors and sinners. There's hope for the self-righteous Pharisees. Oh, that we would all repent of our attempts to justify ourselves and earn right standing before God and look only to Jesus. In that moment, we'll sing the song truly and rightly. I will glory in my Redeemer who crushed the power of sin and death, my only Savior before the Holy Judge, the Lamb who is my righteousness. It seems fitting that we close this morning with rejoicing that we glory in our older brother who came seeking and saving the lost, that we sing his triumph song, because Jesus is the elder brother we all need. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank You for the marvelous provision of Your Son, Jesus Christ. truth is, all of us identify with both of these brothers. We've both been guilty of the things that they do both in committing sins against You as well as trying to establish our own faulty righteousness before You. We've all been found wanting Your stuff more than You. We've all been found wandering in a distant country. We're thankful that You sent Your Son out into the distant country to find us, to save us, to bring us home. And I pray even this morning, there are some in here that are lost who are wandering in that far distant country, that You would woo them, that You would bring them to Yourself, that You would grant them eyes to see the glory of Jesus, that they would look to Him, the elder brother who comes to save. Pray that You would bring lost sinners into Your family. You do this by Your grace and glory. Father, we also this morning, I know we've spoken a lot about father and sons, We also do thank You for the mothers You've placed in our lives. Both those who gave birth to us as well as those who have made huge investments in our lives. I pray Your blessings on each and every one of these ladies. You'd strengthen them, that they would be encouraged. The truth is every day of our lives we should be mindful to encourage and thank them for their service. But I pray that this day in particular we would remember that. Give You thanks, Lord, for these women that You've placed in our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.